Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. And welcome to Mind Your Loaf, a podcast about taking action on our mental health. I'm here at my co-host, Mark. Hi, everybody. Brilliant. And a team at Irish Mental Health Charity, TurnToMe.ie, who besides helping us with this podcast, provide professional mental health support online free to everyone in Ireland. Joining us now on Mind Your Loaf is Dr. Rory O'Connor, who's in Glasgow, who is from Derry. And he is a professor of health psychology at University of Glasgow, and I do love the Scottish a lot. Welcome, Dr. Rory O'Connor. Welcome, delighted to be here. Hi, Rory. And there's Mar. Listen, thanks for doing this because the topic is uh, suicide. And just to say to you, uh, we've done this is our third series of uh, in Mind Your Loaf, and we've done all sorts of different topics. But every time we decided to try and do suicide, we were quite nervous about it, and we were nervous about it because we didn't really know how to approach it. And we didn't really know enough about it. And it's also, and then we were kind of going, but no, no, it's a very important topic. Like, why are we avoiding it? You know, and so we just didn't even know even where to start, how to, how to start even talking about suicide. So where where do you start, Rory, with something like this? Yeah, that's, a, that's a great, great question, Jason. I think, I suppose, where I begin with is I understand people's anxieties because, I always think of suicide as the big S in the yeah. same way that cancer was the big C 10 or 20 years ago. We didn't talk about it. And I think with suicide, it's like one of the last taboos we have in sort of our modern society that that people still cross the road, sadly, sadly, if they know somebody who's died by suicide. And I hear that time and again, still feeling bereaved by suicide, still having the, the stigma around suicide. And that, and that stigma, I think, is... Is, is, it's driven by lots of different factors. Part of it is fear, because the biggest fear in any one of us is, A, that I myself might become suicidal, and B, that somebody we know might become suicidal or die by suicide. There's something about that fear. And then there's also this idea about, what if I say the wrong thing? So what if I, there's, there's lots of myths around suicide. So one of the myths I think worth talking about here is, oh, if, I, if I ask somebody if they're suicidal, Oh, that'll plant the idea in their head. And that's yeah. absolutely not true. That's rubbish. And indeed, the best step forward in terms of getting somebody the help that they, can, that they require often is by asking that really difficult question. So, of course, I understand it. And we have to be really sensitive around the, 
the language we use, and recognizing the stigma and the pain that people who are suicidal suffer, as well as those loved ones left behind. It's so important we have this conversation because it's conversations like these which will save people's lives. But I was saying as well, Rory, earlier on that if, like, if you directly say to somebody, "Are you suicidal?" Their answer is going to be no straight away, isn't it? I mean, they're not going to go, "Yes, I am." Are they straight off? Well, you, you'd be surprised. Of course, you have to be. If you ask the question in a closed way, mm. and, and the person gets a sense that really you want the answer to be no, well, the answer will be no. But I know certainly from lots of people, I've asked that question of many people over the years, and I know others have as well. If you ask it in such a way, which is you're, you're being direct and saying, look, I'm really concerned about you. I think that maybe you're clearly not feeling the best. Have you had thoughts of ending your life? Have you thought of, of taking your own life? Being direct, but doing it in a way which is you're willing and you're communicating the fact that you're willing for that answer to be yes. And that yeah. answer is yes. Then maybe then, then we all have a responsibility. And that's, that's scary. Because if somebody says yes, that's the biggest fear. What do you do next? And what you do next is listen, respond compassionately, try and be empathetic, and don't be dismissive, and then work together to say, well, actually, let's think about who you may we could speak to, a professional perhaps, or somebody else to get the help and support that you may need. And so and that's a really important oh, sorry, point. Sorry, 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 Jason. But just what you're saying there, Rory, that, you know, in in asking that question, you know, I'm really, you know, prefacing it, I'm really concerned about you. That means I'm seeing you. I, I'm, I, I'm engaging with you. And by asking the question, are you thinking of harming yourself? Are you thinking of ending your own life? What, what you're saying is I'm not afraid to talk with you about this. I'm not afraid to hear what you have to say. And again, in the desolation and loneliness, that must be part of, you know, that mental health suffering that in itself can be very, can it be redemptive in a way? Can well, it? Absolutely. I think that's a great point, Mar. In that, so, so there's a couple of things there. One is you're validating how, how somebody yeah. feels. And people who are suicidal often have experienced many, many years, in many, many cases, of having their feelings not validated. And people yeah. saying, oh, you're okay. What's your problem? Get on with it sort of idea. Whereas it's so important to, to recognize and give legitimacy to how that person feels. But crucially, you're right, this idea that if you think, so we've done a lot of work of trying to understand the psychology of suicide, and I've developed this model of suicide. It's a bit of a mouthful, but it's called the Integrated Motivational Volitional Model, or the IMV model. And at the heart of the IMV model is this sense that people's suicidal pain is driven by this sense of entrapment. You're trapped by this mental pain that you feel that you've experienced loss or defeat or you're a burden on others. So if you imagine the pit of despair that people who are suicidal in, they think they're worthless. But if somebody listens, if somebody reaches out, if you're worth somebody listening and asking that question, those small glimmers of hope, those yeah. can give you, open that, I often talk about this tunnel vision and others in the suicide research field talk about the tunnel vision or the cognitive constriction about around suicide, that you don't see alternatives. You see suicide as the only way to end your pain. But if somebody yeah. gives you a glimmer of hope, that helps you sort of widen the blinkers and hopefully, hopefully get some help and support. But you know the way you're uh, you're talking about somebody who's like experienced and qualified, and so what I'm like what I'm hearing you saying is like you know you know look, we look out for this and we look out for that trait and this trait. But what about people at home that have no experience in mental health? They don't know anything about it, and they don't spot what you spot because they're not qualified. So what are what are they going to look for? 
Well, I mean, so the first thing I would say is humanity, common humanity and empathy yeah. and compassion. So, so I think treating everybody with compassion and humanity is the first and foremost. And we all, we all can do that. Then in terms of sort of warning signs, people who are talking about feeling trapped, people who are talking about being hopeless, people who are talking about, actually, I'm a burden on others and people would be better off if I was dead. That's one of the key markers we know is that that's that combination of feeling, I, basically, I, why, why would, the world would not be a different place if I was dead. And indeed, many people think the world would be a better place if I was dead. So just asking, reaching out and asking those questions we would ask of anybody we cared about. And maybe part of it, I think, is overcoming the fear of asking these difficult questions. Yeah. And but, 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 but Jason, it's an interesting point you make about the professionals. The number of times I've heard over the years of people who just they, they've contacted me and said, oh, because in talks I may have given, I said, ask these questions. And people have asked these questions and, and people have said because a friend or loved one reached out, often it's not the person closest to them. It might have been a work colleague or somebody who was sort of a friend, but they asked the question and that glimmer of hope, that was, I mean, that was something to hold on to, a reason for living, a reason, because often we're, they're yeah. balancing reasons for living versus reasons for dying. And those small things, because one of the things we do from some of the research we've done, we do a lot of research on future thinking. And one aspect is we get people in these experimental conditions to tell us what they're looking forward to and what they're concerned about. And what we've shown is that in that acute suicidal state, people who are suicidal, it's not that they're overwhelmed with negativity, it's just they can't see the future. They cannot literally see the future, a positive future with them in it. Whereas somebody basically asking that question, reaching out, my God, that just can be so, so powerful. And so it's it's about probably you know, reassuring people and giving them a meaning in life. Like, uh, I, like I want to end my life. Like I had, I had a friend of mine. Okay. I'll, I'll, let's see. If, uh, and I was in New York with her and she said to me, she was very sick. And she said to me, um, we're just walking along. And again, I had no idea that she had any kind of, I knew that she, she had a bit of depression and all, but you've no idea she had suicidal thoughts. And she said to me, just out of the blue, she said, would you ever, you know, do this? And I went, no, I never would. And she goes, oh, yeah. And it was like she was looking for validation, like that it was okay to do it. And she was Mm -hmm. going, oh, would you not? I went, no, because I'd leave behind my mom and my dad and my sisters and my friends, and I'd I'd cause so much pain for them all because um, I said to her, you know, we love you, you we need you here. You know, we, so many people that don't want you to to do this, you know, and she got, and she she just, she was asking, and then unfortunately I left New York and then she, uh, uh, what happened anyway after about two or three months later was that she she didn't make it like she yeah she actually yeah. uh you know passed away but uh the, she did try out the telltale signs and people did try to help her but it was almost like she had this things her mind made up somehow well it's really sad no, no that is, that's incredibly sad jason and that story sadly is so common up and down the country but I suppose it's, if you try and get into the minds of somebody who's in this acute suicidal state, so what you've said there, like this idea, maybe they didn't think they're worthwhile, right? And then this other thought that you think, you think that the pit of despair that you're in or the sense of I'm not, I'm a burden on others, you think it's not going to change. It's not going to get better. Mm-hmm. So it comes back to this idea, when, they th- when we think about the future, 
when we all think about the future, hopefully when we get up in the morning, I'm going, okay, I want to do that. I'm excited, for example, today about doing this podcast and doing a yeah. talk later. And so that's just keeping me going. But for suicidal individuals, often they can't see that. And they and, and they're, they're often live in this acute world of things will never, never change. And no matter what I do, I'll never feel better. And that's the bit, that's the trick, not the trick, that's the sort of, the, the cognitive sort of distortions, this way, the the distortions the way people are thinking, which are in part driven by depression and a whole range of other things. So one might be, we know, for example, early life trauma, people who experience early life trauma or increased risk of mental health problems and suicide in particular. And that's in part because early life trauma, I mean, when you're building your relationships, often they become disruptive. And then and we think about how, how we build relationships in adulthood. We think about either consciously or unconsciously of how those relationships were built in childhood. Yeah. And that that's in that sense of me, who I am is all de- is developed in part in childhood. So people often bring this vulnerability with them. So we all are different people, of course, and different vulnerabilities. But I suppose taking it back to your, your friends or other cases like that, I think for me, it's it's recognizing that, that just even though it's so difficult to predict suicide, so we're no better yeah. than flipping a coin and predicting who will die by suicide. I um, this, oh, sorry, go on, keep going. Sorry, right. No, so just saying, just finish with Terry. <laughs> going on a bit. Uh, no, um, no. <laughs> what's it? I sometimes get a bit overexcited. No, no, but this is why we have you here. <laughs> spill, spill it out, Rory, spill it out. <laughs> no, but it's, it's recognized, is it, there's no right way of asking the, of, asking the question in a way if we suppose my message is everybody has a different story and that getting at that story and story and understanding that person is different is unique we're all unique and we look at the common features around suicide but i suppose my message would be if it is a friend you don't have to be a professional it's it's basically if you if you basically say be or is this something i wouldn't mind being asking or i would basically feel a sense of empathy and compassion you can't go far wrong so i suppose going back to your friend it's such a sad sad case i've also sadly been bereaved by suicide and two devastating cases two very important people in my life and and i look back with i ask myself every day still every day what i should and could have done differently and that's the reality and that's an awful awful reality that seems to be a massive thing with people from who've suffered from from a loved one that they've lost a suicide it does. It, it's such a big knot on your chest, and you're going oh. through shit, and you're going, "Or what have I said this? What have I did that? What have I did? Especially like, you know, uh, you'll you'll hear some horrible teenage suicides, and their families are like so devastated. And you're, isn't it? They're they're trying to grab onto the past where they went. Oh, if only, if only, if only, if only, if only, if only. But like, there's probably nothing they could have done, you know, if they didn't see what was going on. I mean, no, absolutely. No, I, I we we all experience those if the, the if only's. Um, actually, I'm, I'm writing this book on for hopefully sort of public for the general public on suicide. The minute I mean, I actually have a whole section on that, exactly that the what ifs, the if only's. And I suppose the conclusion I am come to and looking is that we can't change the past, of course, and that um and that 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 is a natural sort of course of grief is that sense of guilt which is that those if onlys are all guilt driven what could i have done and we can't we have to acknowledge that, that we we that death the death has sadly occurred and that it basically we have to now look after ourselves and those if onlys 
or increasing your own risk because the, the, the stark reality is, statistically speaking, if, you're, if you've lost a loved one to suicide, your own risk of suicide has increased. Now, it's a statistical increase in risk because the overwhelming majority of people will never, ever die by suicide. But it's really important to recognize that we are now vulnerable and that we need to look after ourselves. And that's such an important message. Um, for loved ones, doesn't matter if the loved one's a, fa a family member or a friend, that sort of experience of the trauma and the grief yeah. are associated with increased risk of suicide. And um, sorry, Jason, just in what you're saying there, both Jason and Rory, thinking about the people who are uh, who are bereaved to suicide, because I think the conversation around suicide prevention must be really hard for people who have already lost people to suicide because they think, oh, Jesus, I should, you know, I, again, it can bring up that. But I think that the, the thing is nobody takes their own life for just one reason. And you know, prevention, prevention isn't just one thing, you know, and, and, and I think what you're saying there is very important that the people who have been bereaved by suicide, they, they need to look after themselves. They, their own vulnerability now is their main concern. Yeah, no, I think that's, Mari made three really important points which I had on my list of making sure I said. Okay. So one of them is the complexity. So first of all, Absolutely, suicide is never caused by a single episode or a single event. And often the media reported as such, and often you might see, oh, bullying led to my son or daughter taking their own life. And of course, bullying in that particular case is in the is part of the complex puzzle, but it, it's often this perfect storm of factors. So it's really important to recognize that. So, so I'm really pleased you mentioned that. And then the second one is actually the brief people, people who are briefed by suicide incredible advocates incredibly painful of course but the amount of, the number of changes we've seen nationally globally in terms of moving forward suicide prevention has been driven by people sadly who have lost loved ones so there's such an important part of, the, of of suicide prevention and indeed one of the great i i've been working in this field for 25 years and um in the last 10 years in particular i would say seeing involving people with lived experience not lived experience both people who are bereaved by suicide as well as those who are being suicidal that's how we've moved forward in suicide prevention because the, their voice is so vital so so vital and i've now forgotten the third thing that you that you reminded me of but it'll come back to me but, but those are two two really important ones anyway and hopefully my memory will come back a lot can happen in the next three years like a chatbot maybe your new best friend but what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. 
My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. And have you spoken to any survivors of, I know this is a mad sentence, survivors of suicide who actually try to commit, not commit, sorry, but to survive, to try to actually go through with the act, but then survived? And then did they, did you learn anything from them or have you spoken to those? Yeah, so a lot of our research is with, we've done research on thousands of people who've attempted suicide. And so a a lot of our work is, so we do different sorts of research in the Suicidal Behaviour Research Lab, but some of it is, well, a lot of it's hospital-based work. So we, um, with individuals who are admitted to hospital following a suicide attempt, and then some of our studies, what we might try and do is um, try and understand the different psychological and social and clinical factors which are associated with suicidal risk. And then on other studies, we then try and help them. Obviously, we try and intervene to pr- protect and support them. But in terms of what we've understand, so this model of suicide, the sort of this I- the IMV model, this idea of, of defeat and entrapment and and so on, that's that, a lot of that's been borne out by the research that we've done. So I'll just give you one example. One of our studies a few years ago in Edinburgh, actually, we mentioned you mentioned I've seen this man, Jason yeah. in Edinburgh, and um, good old Edinburgh, good old Edinburgh. But in one of the major hospitals there, we've done a lot of work over the years. And in one of our studies, we, what we did, in, we, a, a group of individuals who were uh, admitted to hospital following a suicide attempt, and we, they, we then asked them a whole range of questions in an interview about their thoughts and feelings. And we assessed this idea of how trapped they felt and a range of other things like depression and anxiety and hopelessness and so on. And then we're able to, um, over time, confidentially and anonymously track who then attempted suicide again or died by suicide, sadly. And what we were able to demonstrate in that study a few years ago was the key, the two key factors which were important in predicting who attempted suicide again in the future was how trapped they told us they were when we saw them in hospital and whether how often they'd attempted suicide in the past. Because the single best predictor of any future behavior, including suicidal behavior, is past behavior. So if you do something once, you're more likely to do it again. But crucially in terms of, I can't change people's past behavior, but I could try and intervene in their sense of entrapment. So one of the calls I've been saying for a number of years now is, clinically, we need to be trying to target interventions, psychological interventions, to make it less likely that people feel trapped. Now, also, if we look more broadly, that's a clinical intervention. And Jason, you mentioned earlier about, well, what about everybody in the street? We mean non-professionals. We all have a role to play in, in looking at how society both um, contributes to people feeling trapped. So if you're from a socially disadvantaged group or if you're from another minority group, so for example, we know that people who are lesbian, gay, bisexual, transsexual are all are increased risk of suicidal behavior. question we need to ask yourself is, what as a society are we doing to make it more likely that these groups of people feel trapped? Why is it young people feel more trapped now? And that's, there's a lots of stuff we all can be doing in terms of the, the calling on our politicians to make sure we prioritize suicide prevention, making sure now we're going through COVID. And, and obviously, yeah. although there's no evidence of an increased rate of suicide in, in, yeah, in anywhere in, in, in these islands, but there is, we did a study in the middle of lockdown, we're doing this longitudinal study, which we're following 
a national sample of people across the UK and we're looking at their mental health. And we've seen that in, in the, six, the first six weeks of the first lockdown in the UK, there's increased rates of suicidal thoughts. The suicidal thoughts increased over the six weeks, in particular amongst young people, in particular amongst women, in particular amongst people from more socially disadvantaged backgrounds and people with previous mental health problems. So the question we have to ask is, what can we do then, not just in COVID, but in society more generally, to protect people's mental health? And then, and so, so there's there's so much we can be doing, really. To I mean, because number one for me is when we think of COVID, mental health. Obviously, the virus is awful, awful, awful. But the mental health consequences are also awful, yeah. and we need to make sure that's protected. It's about giving them some sort of a lifeline as well. I mean, what's really weird is that there's like there's like an NA meetings, there's AA meetings. But I mean, is it weird to say? Could there be like a it could not, I don't know what you would call it, but I think that when people are all in the same boat and all thinking and they're all thinking the same thing, and I think sometimes they find comfort in that and they could all just help each other. You know, Absolutely. like, it, could there be a peer group or something set up for, you know, suicide prevention? Yeah, well, there, there are some of those across the country uh, or across nationally and internationally. So well, one of the big challenges we have in suicide prevention is... In, in UK and Ireland, three quarters of all suicides are by men. Um, it's a single, and depending on which statistic you look like, it's the single biggest killer of men under the age of 50. Wow. Um, and, and what we do, and what we need to think about is, are we providing sufficient supports for those, for the, those men, right? And so, so we talked about clinical interventions a minute ago. So clinical interventions are really good if they get the people who are most vulnerable. But and we look at the research. Clinical inter- interventions, uh, or just for people who may not be familiar with that kind of language. I sorry. So clinical interventions, I mean, sort of talking therapies, cognitive behavioural therapy, mm. those sorts of psychological therapies. And if we look at the evidence base for those, and, and from a research point of view, the, the evidence base shows that they, they are effective in reducing suicidal behaviour in people, but we don't know whether they work for men because most of those studies don't have enough men in them. So my question is that. Do men, are those the best way of get, reaching out and getting uh, supporting men? And so we need to tailor our responses. And actually, there's lots of really innovative work going on, for, for example, in football clubs, in rugby clubs, and I assume in Ireland, in GEA clubs, and, and, and all those sort of venues where you're not doing a psychological intervention, but you're organizing groups and supports where men are alongside men, protecting and supporting each other. They're not asking each other about, How's your mental health every day? Yeah. But maybe they're just chatting and not chatting. Yeah, we have long, a thing. We have a men's sheds. They call yeah, it. Yeah, men's sheds. Yeah, which, yeah, which seems to help a lot. You know, mm. which is really good. And then even talking about like, because I have a, I have children as well now. So of course, it's like how uh, my son, um, they had a, a young kid that uh, that 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 uh, took her own life, and it was devastating for them. And obviously she, like, like they were all confused. They didn't know why she did it. Was like, didn't know what was going on. And so I have a 13 year old as well now. And so what I, what I taught, I don't know if this is, if it, if this is good, but I taught, I was talking to Mar about this earlier on the way I, instead of me saying to him, do you have any suicidal thoughts or are you ever like that? What I was doing was I was saying, now listen, if there's anybody in your class or in your school that looks unhappy or you think might have these thoughts, they come and tell me or tell your parents or tell their parents or tell the teachers. 
and I thought that was a good way of doing it because if I because I didn't direct it at him and mm-hmm. I thought that like so maybe that could be a good way of doing it with children is to not direct it with at them but to kind of give them a sense of responsibility as if they're looking out for somebody else so that even if they are thinking it themselves they'll be you know you're you're you know with them helping helping other children it might help them yeah absolutely I think I would probably go for the dual approach which is um I suppose to me it's about for a young person for a ch- for a school kid is about ha- opening up the, the channels of communication and so that that the, that the young person feels that there's somewhere they can go with their feeling down or, or distressed so I think what you're suggesting is a great idea of this, this sort of sense of community and reaching out and connectedness I think that's a brilliant idea but I suppose I would also just be upfront and saying well actually if you're having thoughts um, let's talk about them and and so that so they don't become this thing because sometimes, I mean, if we don't if we don't talk about them or, or we feel we don't talk about them, then they, they often take off on a life of their own. And what you're trying to do is actually to, to help them regulate because they're because you know, kids will kids will have these have thoughts of feeling down. And we know once you hit puberty, so mental health problems in general, irrespective of what happened in that school context you just mentioned, Jason. But in uh, uh, mental health problems are very rare before puberty puberty kicks in and you start to see mental health problems occurring and indeed in adolescence that's a steep at, at any time in the life span during adolescence it's the steepest curve in terms of increase in onset of mental health problems or in self-harm and, and suicidal thoughts and behaviors and indeed the reality is by the age of 16 20 percent of girls will have self-harmed right now that's yeah. a, a stark reality uh, and we don't we don't work in Ireland and in Northern Ireland and across the UK on that. And so that's the reality we're living in. And the other sad reality is, um, in in terms of statistics, over the last number of years, although I've mentioned already, men being more likely three quarters of suicides are male, we started to see this increase in young female suicides, and we just don't know why that's the case yet. And that's something we and all people working in the field are really trying to disentangle and um, what is increased risk people are obviously saying oh it must be to do with social media now i think that's social media might be a small part of the puzzle but it's only one small part of the puzzle because remember social media can be helpful and supportive mm-hmm. so when you go back to your thing about um the case of suicide happens in in a school how we support our young people might involve social media and on these other ways of supporting each other in a, in a way which is safe of course what so safety planning is an, an individual intervention you can do with somebody and it's relatively simple and, and what if somebody is suicidal what we do is we work with them to help identify what the warning signs what they think are the warning signs for them becoming suicidal and then we get them to think about distraction internal distraction techniques they can use that could be things like mindfulness or doing exercise or listening to music or watching a movie and also getting to identify individuals that they could call on if the tough if things really get tough so somebody they could reach out to and say actually I'm really concerned about myself here and then we also in that safety plan will help keep make help them work together collaboratively to keep their environment safe so if they've got a particular way in which they they've thought about ending their life we work with them to make sure that we keep as much distance from what that method of death they thought of is and them. So, so that's a, an individual example. And there's growing evidence from 
work across the world now that that safety planning can work on an individual level to save people from attempting suicide in the future. And I think what you're saying there as well, um, Rory, that it is that individual's safety plan. It's coming from them. It's we're facilitating them recognizing their own resources and what and identifying what they need and identifying what they can do. And and even that is giving hope, isn't it? Absolutely. That they're part so of their recovery. Totally. It's it's that sense of collaboration. Collaboration. That sense yeah. of ownership and that sense of legitimate validation and yes. legitimization of people's thoughts and feelings and also trying to help them to help themselves and yeah. that but but, but but in moments of acute crisis if you don't think you can keep yourself safe then obviously reach out emergency services professional services Absolutely. are there but it's yeah. helping it's helping the to to delay as much as possible the escalation of their suicidal yeah. thoughts so because that's really the thing, true the thing about you know that word i i seem to be very stuck on it or you know forgive the pun, but that word entrapment, you know, and you said that internal, that internal um, entrapment, that, it, that, that it's a feeling and it's a belief in that moment. And I read something there this morning about this um, guy whose name, Kevin Hines, a guy yeah, who yeah, yeah. Um, survived um, jumping from uh, the Golden Gate Bridge. And, he, and he's made a film, I think, or a documentary. And, and his point is that, you know, he's kind of, what would you say his his main message as a a survivor of 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 suicide um saying you are not alone and it is possible to what way does he put it brain health is possible which is the opposite of entrapment isn't it it's that belief that things can be different absolutely so just to say about him real quickly as well the thing he said after because that's a documentary that is on the Golden Gate Bridge about loads of them doing that is that he was so happy that he survived as he was going down he changed his mind he said yeah he literally went oh my god what have i done and he was elated and that was his message as well was that he was so happy to be alive and that he thinks that everybody you know just needs to get that into them no it's absolutely amazing to live yeah because his one of his um strap lines now or uh, uh, models is be here for tomorrow yeah and and, and his work is um is all about yeah, exactly that moment and I mean, it's really moving. He's, he's done a number of documentaries and I've seen him speak a couple of times. And, and, and it's this idea exactly is, so the suicide mind is, is full of ambivalence between living and dying. And that moment of acute suicidality, that he, I mean, that's when he's obviously, he then obviously acted on his thoughts of suicide. But exactly, he talks really eloquently about this, that almost a second after he enacted it, um, and he, he was he was regretting it and and it changed his mind and that's for lots of people who are suicidal that's often that go between living and dying and that's why things like safety plans are so important yeah. because what you're trying to do is in that acute moment of suicidal risk in which you're feeling really really overwhelmed is that if you can do whatever we can to keep that person safe um, and I've just remembered Mar that third thing yay that's what we were waiting for I was trying to finish up and I went Rory will remember the third thing and that's when we're allowed to go <laughs> no so so no the third thing is on, from the, the point of view of, of, of people who are bereaved and experiencing uh, the, it's basically it, um, the, I'm trying to put, put, put it so is it if you're if you're in this acute suicidal state um, and you think 
do you think, oh my God, what, what, what could be done differently? And that I'm a burden in others and it's maybe selfish. So often people say, well, it's a selfish act. Suicide is a selfish act. And it's not a selfish act. Mm -hmm. because, and this is so important because, um, because in that acute state of suicidality, the person just thinks, just thinks, the people around me would be better off if I yeah. was dead. <clears throat> and that's a bit that if you're somebody who's left behind, find really difficult to come to terms with, is that how could their loved one do this to me? How yeah. could they inflict this pain on me? And the really important message is that it's not, that in that acute state, the person counterintuitively thinks they're doing them a favor, an yeah. awful way to describe yeah. it, because it's not. And I think that's really, really important. Yes. That we don't talk about, that's another myth about seeing suicide is, as a selfish act, because it's not. It's yeah. a, the most, um, the founding father of suicide research and prevention talks about uh, suicide being the permanent solution to t often temporary problems. Yeah. And that's the reality. In that moment of tunnel vision and overwhelming pain, the person thinks, this is the only way I can end the pain, and I think I'm doing others, I'm helping others because I'm a burden on them. Yeah. And the other thing as well, you know, family members, you know, kind of go, God, how could, how could he or she do this to me, as you said, or there's that thing that we think that they decided to do this. And that seems mm. so pre, like, and I know there is some pre-thinking about it, but I suppose the thing is that when somebody is in that acute abject state of just such suffering, they're not in what would you say of, I don't want to say of sound, what's the right word? They're, no, they're just, they're they're just overwhelmed. Process. They're overwhelmed. Yeah. You know, and, 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 you know, when you think about choice and it's a choice and all this, you're, 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 are you really choosing if you feel you've no choice? Do you know the kind of way? I, yeah, that's, that's a really, really important point because it makes a distinction between decision, yeah. suicide is a decision and suicide yeah. is a choice. Suicide is not a choice. It no. is not a choice. It is a decision an individual makes, but it's yeah. a decision they make when they're absolutely overwhelmed yeah. and exhausted. So I always think it's, it's really worth thinking about um, this sense of over, overwhelming pain is you think about any, think about our physical capacity. So if you're a runner or do any exercise, we all, there gets this stage in which we become totally exhausted and we cannot do any more and, and our, because our body's at capacity. Yeah. And it's exactly the same for mental health. So you're, if, you're, if you're living day in, day out with this overwhelming pain or intermittently with this overwhelming pain, you get to a stage where you just run out of energy and resource. And that sense of running out of resource is then that maybe that's when it makes a decision more likely because yeah, you go, yeah. actually, I am just exhausted. Yeah. I cannot continue. And if you're exhausted and cannot, and you feel you can't continue, it interrupts with what we describe as your, all your basic homeostatic functions. And your homeostatic functions are like eating, sleeping, yeah. all that stuff. And if you don't sleep, don't problem solve. If you don't problem solve, you're more likely to make more decisions and then one last thing i'll just say just has come into my head is we do work on on the stress hormone cortisol yeah and we all need cortisol when we, when we encounter stressful situations we need cortisol to be released because cortisol helps us it's a fight or flight hormone it, 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 it helps us um make good decisions it helps us problem solve and so on and, and regulate our emotions this is work i do i have an identical twin brother who's a he's a professor of psychology also in, in leeds university Daryl, and this is what we, we do together. And what we've shown is that if we compare people who attempted suicide compared to people who just think about suicide, is that what we find is that people who've attempted suicide, their cortisol system just isn't working well enough. 
But the individuals who've attempted suicide are not releasing as much cortisol. And, the re- and, and then you can see why then that sort of physiology, so your your body's not prepared to fight in the same way that somebody who's releasing more cortisol. Okay. And then the last thing I'll say in that is we've also shown that people's levels of childhood trauma predict how much cortisol they release in our lab now, even though the trauma may have happened 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. So it illustrates the complexity, the lifelong, if we're looking at suicide prevention, we have to take a lifespan perspective. Suicide, to my mind, is ultimately a psychological phenomenon because somebody makes a decision to end their own life, well, it's, it's influenced by biology, social factors, like social disadvantage, such an important risk factor for suicide. A whole range of cultural factors all come together in this perfect storm that leads to about at least 800,000 people ending their life each year across the globe. It's just... Well, Dr. Rory O'Connor, <laughs> thanks a million for that. That's uh, As usual, we talked to you for a half an hour, but we didn't. It was nearly an hour. So sorry about that. <laughs> it's no, like, uh, but listen, just before... Too. Just before you go, um, what's, what are you going to be doing next now? What's, what's for you now? Because you're uh, on a book, aren't you, right now? Yeah, so I'm actually, so we're, we're obviously involved in all our research. So we have lots of research studies ongoing. And we're currently working on this study at the minute, which I'm really excited about, which is looking at emotion processing, trying to, trying to look at different ways in which we can measure emotion processing in people who are vulnerable to suicide. But, but you mentioned the book, and uh, yeah, so that's taken over my life because in all my spare moments at nights and weekends, I'm trying oh, to God. De- have a December deadline, but hopefully when it's darkest, um, uh, basically, which is trying to be a sort of book for, for everybody to try and understand why people become suicidal. I talk a lot, of, I talk a lot about what we've discussed now, yeah. but also how we can help the most vulnerable. So, um, so that'll be out in 2021. So, and the name um, of it is when it's most when it's when it's when, when it's darkest. When and darkest. How, to, how to help people who are su- how do you understand and help people who are suicidal effectively? Fantastic. Um, okay. Well, look. Thanks a million for joining us. Rory, thank you so and that much. That was amazing. So, and like yeah. people can check you out online and like if you're you're everywhere. And look, say hello to Glasgow for me because I miss it. I, I should be on my tour, my British tour right now, and I should be in Glasgow. Um, well, no, I look forward to seeing you again, Jason. Uh, Roshan, I just wanted to point out to you guys, because Jason brought it up. So on Turn to Me, there is a support group for people who are experiencing suicidal thoughts and feelings. Is, is there a separate thing for that? Yeah. So basically what it is, is you log on to Turn to Me, and I don't know what day it is, but there's an hour every week, and you can just log in and it's instant chat, and it's anonymous. And it's facilitated by a professional... What? What are they looking for when they see it? Suicidal thoughts and feelings. Suicidal thoughts and feelings. Okay. Support group. So there's Dr. Rory O'Connor. Wow, that was um, like I I I I don't say I'm speechless. It was so informative. He is so informative, and I, yeah. I, I again just reiterating the importance of being comfortable to have the conversation. And I could even hear us in that conversation faltering over the language. You know, um, I, you know, I'm saying I said commit suicide, and then correcting myself. And that's yeah. that's what we do. We we correct ourselves. And I know you, you had a, a stumble as well, um, in, in relation to it. But I think that is the the key message. It is about creating comfort around us speaking about our own emotions, how we are. So, Because when we talk about them and share them, that sense of entrapment is automatically reduced. Yeah. Do you know the kind of way? And, and 
Yeah. I mean, he just, I just love all his point. I mean, all the stuff I never even thought of, which was like take, uh, kind of taken away. Uh, I can't remember the exact language he used there now. Oh my God, it's gone out of my head. Which, you know, like what he was saying about the, the pills and making the, the tablets. Yes. Like those, uh, inter- those, um, blister, you know, the t packs. Yes. Pack out. Basically, take away, remove uh, accessibility. Accessibility means. to. Yeah. To, yeah, yeah, to the means. Yeah, I yeah. thought that was, a, that was a brilliant thing to say. Uh, and the the so and I think I, again I just want to I think we should reiterate again th- th- this try not to be afraid of asking the question if there is somebody in your life that you feel is having suicidal thoughts um, ask them invite them to tell you what's going on yeah Say and the I like words, the way he, you know? yeah he said don't like ask them directly like don't ask them directly you know. and and again. You know, sometimes we, we hear people say, you're not planning to do anything stupid, are you? Or you're that kind of thing. And oh. as Rory said, that if the if somebody feels that you want a particular answer, they will give you that answer. So they know in asking it that way, we're encouraging to say, them to say, no, 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 I'm not. Yeah, that's because they know you're you're no help to them then. Well, it, but again, there's that feeling of judgment and shame yes. and all of that, which creates the trap. So again, asking them, you know, have you been thinking of, of taking your own life? Have you been thinking? about killing yourself is this something that you're thinking about right now and again it, it, it invites and it opens up a conversation and then being a just being there to listen just hear what they're saying hear the story we each individual as you made that point jason we often f- might feel inept or you know that, oh i'm not professional so i can't help no nobody no one person is going to fix everything but it's creating a moment and widening that moment that can be the difference between somebody thinking about something and somebody somebody thinking about ending their life and somebody actually taking action to do that. So again, when that person feels that somebody has reached in towards them and that is sitting with them and just listening, hear their story, then we can start hearing reasons for them to live. Yeah. Does that make sense? And they can hear reasons for them to live. You know. And also, we spoke about... <clears throat> Sorry, people like you know talking about, and I, I'm you know, I'm talking to each other about it. So, but but on our website, on Turn to Me, yeah. there is a, a peer group which comes up, uh, which is titled as "Suicidal Thoughts and Feelings." If you look support out for that, yeah. there's a support group on there. So, um, yeah, and again, just to say that that's, that's, to that's accessible. That is accessible. It's free. You can log on. <coughs> yeah, sorry. It's anonymous. And, and as you said earlier, Jason, you know, coming together with people who are ex- who are feeling the same way as you can, can be that support that, that that can change how you're thinking about something. Again, going back to that, what Rory said, that it's that it's, you know, experiences of defeat and humiliation through whatever means that we, when a person becomes or feels entrapped in that, especially by their internal thinking about it then they believe there's no other option but there is always another option there is always another option um, in every in every walk of there, mental health there's always yeah. another option and there are people there there are support here for for you for yeah. all of us yeah okay well good so, I'm, I'm so glad we did that now so am i, I i'm really really glad so I, important I, yeah yeah absolutely so right. on that note um guys um as we always say mind yourselves yeah, mind, your mind yourselves, mind your bloody loaf. And uh, we, we've got, you know, uh, loads more apps coming up in Series 3. So talk to you soon. Thanks, Mar. Take care now. Thanks, Jason. Thanks, Dr. Rory Connor. See bye you bye. later. Bye, 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 bye.
Turn to Me provides professional mental health support. Ah, Jason, lo- do your, uh, you know, your ad voice. Oh, yeah, I'll do the yeah, ad. Yeah. Okay, oh. I'll do a proper ad okay. thing. Okay, ready? Yeah. As a registered charity, Turn to Me provides professional mental health support online for anyone in Ireland going through a tough time. From one-to-one counselling to group and peer support, Turn to Me is accessible from any device anywhere in Ireland. If you would like to support Turn to Me, you can donate four euros by texting Turn to Me to five zero three zero zero. Text costs four euros. Turn to Me will receive a minimum of three euro sixty. Service provider like charity helpline zero seven. Six six eight zero five two seven eight. Is that you? Yeah, that was actually me. There, okay. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 